0: another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico.
1: I'm Danielle Henderson.
0: And we're back, y'all. We're back. What's up?
1: What's up? What's up indeed? Well, you know <laughs> something's up. <laughs> because we have been texting genuinely all day. Yes, we have. So you know something's up. But what I can say is, what I can reveal to the listeners, even though I can't say what we were texting about, sure, I will reveal that it the, the, the whole text thread ends with Millie going to a witch shop and then kind of clearing them out on my behalf.
0: Ah! <laughs> so. I want to just say, I got, I have to be honest because I am not a witch. No, no, no. I'm not a witch. Don't want to be a witch. You're Catholic. Not even close to being a witch. You are raised in the church, y'all. <laughs> Listen, I, I just, I'm a dabbler in a lot of things. Like, I just, I love the information. Let's just yes. say that. I love the information. And so, I'm a sucker for any kind of uh, specialized shop. And so today, I just happen to be in a witch shop <laughs> because of Danielle. While I was having a complete breakdown. Yes. Look, y'all know me. I'm an older sister. Yes. I am very protective of the people that I love to the point where sometimes people got to tell me, all right, calm down. But, you know, I'm ready to fight. Always. Right? Like, if somebody, if one of my friends comes to me and says something's going down, I am, like, waiting at the end of the driveway for the neighbor kids to roll up so I can, like, punch them in the throat. I'm that kind of friend.
1: It is both something I love about you and I think the thing that bonds us the most because we were both (laughs) always looking for for a fucking fight on someone else's behalf. (laughs) We're like,
0: we are ready to throw hands. We are both like Oliver Reed. Like we're both (laughs) Oliver Reed, drunk in a bar, just wanting to fight sailors. We're like, let's fucking go. This is just who we are.
1: It's Wednesday at 7 p.m. Why have we not punched someone yet? What's up?
0: (laughs) Well, like I said, I'm in this store and I'm just basically like, my girl needs help. Give me one of each, one of everything. (laughs) My arm travels along the shelf like I'm just putting shit in a garbage bag. Like, I'm just like, let's go. I'll take all of
1: it. I was on an emotional journey. It gave me comfort (laughs) to know that there was help on the way. And this journey is Shakespearean in scope. (laughs) Shakespearean in scope. And I sent Millie something, some photo evidence uh, the day before. Mm -hmm. And we were very excited about it. And then today woke up and it was a whole different story.
0: Wow. How how quickly the the vibe changes, unfortunately.
1: But I appreciate you always, but especially today because what a journey we've been on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, all I have to say is this. If you're the type of person who is out in this out in this world and you are just playing very fast and loose with, you know, just people's, people's shit, like if you're playing fast and loose with people's shit, just remember, they probably got a friend who will literally go into a witch shop and just start fucking buying candles and pieces of wood and fucking cauldrons and crystals <laughs> to fucking work your ass. So just know that. That's all I got to say.
1: Everyone has a friend who knows a hex. And if you don't get a friend who knows a hex.
0: And also, if your friends don't know a hex, they are going to buy a book. Thank you. That tells them how to place a hex on somebody. So
1: Thank you. This is where we are culturally in the moment. And I appreciate it. (laughs) Everyone is willing to like subversively throw someone's life into complete disorder (laughs) with the cosmos. Like, people are always, you can always find someone who's like, you know what? I'm going to consult the stars. That's how deep this needs to go (laughs) to course correct. Yes. But it helped. I felt good. I went for a little drive after to get some coffee.
0: Yes. You had to go to another state again?
1: I did not have to go to another state, thankfully. I didn't have to go to the neo-Nazi store. It was just a regular old Tuesday. So thankfully... I was just able to go downtown. And you know what my town did over the holidays that was just really sweet? They put little bows on all of the parking meters to give us free parking. Um, Because you know a bitch never has a quarter. And so...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Damn, that's nice. It's quaint as hell. Can you imagine the city of West Hollywood pulling some shit like that? Absolutely the fuck not.
1: I can imagine the exact opposite. I can imagine the city (laughs) of West Hollywood hiring Chippendale dancers to rub their oily bodies all over your windshield if you park for 10 splices of a second without putting money in a fucking (laughs) meter. You're going to get Chippendale.
0: City of West Hollywood is rubbing anthrax on all of their meters. They're not putting bows. Absolutely. like, fuck (laughs) them. We're also going to give these people anthrax as they're paying us. The city
1: of West Hollywood is like, you know what we're going to bring back? Intense leprosy. (laughs) You park here without paying for 10 seconds, you're losing an arm.
0: Yes, they're definitely doing some shit like Queen Carlotta in Desperate Living where they just want to give us all rabies while we pay them yes. $75 per ticket.
1: No, and then you come to lovely this lovely little town in Warwick and they're like, how about you shop and have a meal and get a coffee God. with your friends?
0: Tis the fucking season. That's so awesome. I just I can't imagine. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, literally like a town that, is at the beginning of like a Christmas film that is like in miniature and then the camera like pans over the miniature town and then it goes into like the actual town and it kind of dissolves into like your fucking public library and shit. Like, God, that's so awesome.
1: Absolutely. Actually, I have to do it this summer because it's not year round, but I noticed this spring and summer that right across from the town hall in the little park where they where they filmed one of the last scenes in the movie in and out with my homeboy and yours, Kevin Klein, <laughs> whose life I would ruin, whose <laughs> dick I would destroy. <laughs> right across from town hall in that little park, there is a miniature town hall that they put up in the summer, like a little... T- like a little dollhouse town hall. What? So if you're at town hall and you look across the street, you're looking at a mini town hall. It's very cute.
0: Oh my God. Come on. This place is magical.
1: But there are also, there are things about this town that are not very cute. So a question I wanted to ask you because of something I saw on my drive to get this coffee. Okay. At what age do you think you're going to stop driving a car?
0: Oh, wait, you're talking about the age that I think I'm going to stop or that I want to stop.
1: Either or both? what What age do you want to stop? Do you have a plan, or do you just kind of feel like, okay, by the time I reach this age, I shouldn't be behind the wheel?
0: See, I'm really torn up about this because I do love not driving. What, <laughs> let, let me let me go actually, before I answer your question, let me ask you a question. Got it. Are you usually the friend that drives or gets picked up?
1: I'm the driver. See me too. And I love driving. I've always loved driving. Yeah, however, I got to say, the one thing that the city of West Hollywood had going for it was rideshare. Yes. Because it's such a nightmare to drive your own car anywhere in LA. Yeah. Rideshare kind of comes in handy. But I like driving. Yeah. And it's also, it's always been for me the ultimate symbol of freedom.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm like torn about it because I love to drive too, normally. Like I... I love driving, especially when I haven't driven in a long time. Like, yeah. Actually, the funny thing is about living in West Hollywood. It's like going back to this cursed anthrax town. <laughs> I know, I didn't drive a lot when I lived there because everything was in walking distance and I didn't have a parking space, so I never drove. Exactly. So, <laughs> But when I would drive, like when I finally would get in my car and like drive to work or drive to like, you know, somewhere, I loved it. I loved yeah. driving so much. And so there's a moment where I'm like, I'm not giving up this license until they take it from my cold dead hands type of thing. Right. But I do like being driven too, just because it feels like a pampering thing or something, right? Yeah. And it's and it's a convenience
1: sometimes there's a convenience factor but the reason I the reason I ask is this so I'm driving and I'm about to crest this tiny hill to main street and there's a car parallel parked across both lanes okay so I'm thinking okay it happens people pull out of you know this one little store and you know they pull right into the road and then they go but the car wasn't moving it was just parallel parked And I'm looking closer, and I'm the first car in line. Like, I'm looking at this car. I look closer at the driver. And remember that scene in Beetlejuice with the little shrunken head safari guy? Yes. That is what was driving this car. (laughs) Shit! I looked at one of possibly the oldest people I've ever seen. And I'm not being ageist here. I'm telling you a straight fact. It's like, you remember that Prince Philip before he died? (laughs) They had that picture of him in the back of the car.
0: (laughs) That we sent each other back and forth like a hundred times as a joke.
1: Absolutely. That was what was driving the car. That is who was behind the wheel. And it was this man who was very confused. Wow. And was just kind of sitting there gripping the wheel, mouth open, looking around, red rimmed eyes just looking. So I parked my car and got out and kind of took my life in my own hands because again, my town does have a history of extreme racism. So I took my life in my own hands, and I stepped out and kind of knocked on his window and said, sir, do you need some help? And he just waved me away, but also did not move the car.
0: Yikes.
1: (laughs) So I get back in my car, and I'm thinking, I have to come up with a plan B, where maybe I have to turn around in the middle of this street. And the car starts very slowly moving. He made a 48-point turn, Mm -hmm. and then he took his little shrunken Prince Philip head, down the street at three miles an hour. And I thought, somebody needs to come get this man. (laughs) This is no longer a tenable situation.
0: Dude, listen, my grandfather, before he passed away, like, he passed away in his early 90s, but he was driving until at least the last couple years of his life. So it's like an 89-year-old man out driving around, like fucking Ruth Gordon from Harold and Maude. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, at one point, do we actually have to tell people, okay, we know we want to give you liberty and freedom and all that stuff. <laughs> However, you are going 3 miles an hour down a road and like we just can't have that shit. It's just not conducive to public safety, right? Thank you.
1: Thank you. And I'm thinking for for this man's own benefit. I don't know if he knew where he was going. I don't know if he knew where he was.
0: Yeah. Oh, so
1: it's a real menacing situation for everyone involved. Yeah, and I, I just kind of had that thought of if this were me, I would want someone to push me out of the driver's seat, steal my car, and send me on my way. Like, jobless, good luck. You don't get to have this car anymore. Just gonna steal it. Yeah, and take it from you. But I'm also in this weird camp of, again, driving has always been an extreme point of my own freedom, and I'm about to, you know, move my my 89-year-old grandmother in, yeah. and I'm doing that so that she can maintain her independence for as long as possible. Yeah. So I understand it, but I was scared.
0: <laughs> I was real scared. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tough scenario for sure. I mean, listen, I, I don't know if we ever talked about drunk driving on this podcast before, but no. I'm a person who doesn't even want to even drive after like half of a beer. Same. Like, I'm just like, I know I can't drive drunk. Yep, I am giving you the keys, take them. I'll figure it out later. So, part of me wonders if that'll be my reaction to. Just being too old to drive? Like, I'll just be like, listen, I know I can't do this shit. Here are my keys, you know, take me. What it made me think
1: of, because I thought that too, I'm like, well, you know, right now I'm starting to plan for getting older and, you know, like watching my grandmother get older, realizing, oh, there's a bunch of stuff that I have to plan for that if for any reason I'm immobilized, I want to have a plan for that. Yeah, And now I have to fold in, do I have to hire a driver? <laughs> Even if it's just once a week to take me to an appointment or the grocery store. Because I will not be that little shrunken head Prince Philip crib keeper <laughs> while everyone's buzzing around me in a flying car. I just cannot do it. I cannot envision that as being my future.
0: Well, In my mind, I think my vision for being driven around when I'm in my 80s or something, God, if I make it to 80, if I make it to 80, my driver is going to be, like, a young country dude with an old pickup truck, and I'm just going to have to, like, get into that, like, tank, and he's just gonna have to drive me somewhere without seatbelts on a country road. Like, I'm just like, I don't want to be in a city. I want to be in the country where yes. I'm just like driving around with like some young person who's like super eager to like carry my groceries in paper bags, not plastic. Yes. It'll be just like HUD. Like, I just want to be <laughs> Melvin Douglas and HUD.
1: That's all. I see it. I see it. Yeah. Look, we can make that dream come true because I will turn this house into a commune for all of us. <laughs> We could collectively hire a driver, like, lives on site and is just ready to drive our old asses around, you and me and, like, two or three of our other friends who do not have children and are currently single.
0: What are the other options for transportation as an elderly person? Like, a golf cart or, like, a recumbent bicycle or some shit? Oh, God. I would hate that. Recumbent
1: bicycle. Did I ever tell you about the dude I dated who (laughs) rode a recumbent bicycle?
0: No, no. Ah, Well, I'm not going to tell you now, but I will one day. Those things drive me fucking nuts. Same. And I don't understand why they put like a hundred flags on the the back. I'm like, what is going on with this thing?
1: Because if they don't, they're going to get straight up murdered by any wheel of any car, a passing bicycle, a scooter could take out a recumbent bike.
0: Also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there because, and, and this is simply because I spend a lot of time in Florida where I'm always with recumbent bicycles and fucking golf carts everywhere. <laughs> Only white people like golf carts. <laughs> that, that's, I'm I'm going to just throw that out there. I have never seen anybody but white people who want to drive a golf cart in lieu of their car, which they have. They usually have a very nice car. So in Florida,
1: you're telling me people are like, I have a car. I have a Cutlass Supreme sitting in the driveway <laughs> that I bought brand new in 1984, and I'm hopping in this golf cart and going down to CBS. Yes,
0: ma'am. God damn. People are golf cart crazy around here. And like this is not a type of place where there's cars on the street. It's not like we are living in a commune or living right. in like a very like bucolic, peaceful, like nature sidewalky place. No, 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 this is a city. For the most part, it's small, but it's also like not like a little bitty gated community. This is like a town that has traffic and everything. And I swear to God, like people with like four cars in their giant house still go everywhere by golf cart. And it drives me fucking crazy because I'm like, why are they doing this? And I swear to God, it's only white people. I never see anybody but rich white people on golf carts.
1: You know what it is? It's peak whiteness.
0: Yes. That's what I think it is too. It's
1: peak whiteness. We cracked
0: the code.
1: <laughs> and for my benefit, for just to answer your question from before, I think the best way to get around when you're elderly and you can't get anywhere on your own and you still want to have a little bit of independence, hospital gurney. <laughs> oh my. Hospital gurney and a fucking canoe paddle. I'm out. <laughs> I can raise and lower that shit for speed and simplicity. <laughs>
0: Why haven't they made gurneys that are, like, self-propelled?
1: Thank you. They've got the straps. Most gurneys already have seatbelts. They don't call them that, but they already have seatbelts. They sure as fuck do. All they need to do is modify it. Just modify it a little bit for speed and agility. Those tires can go. You just need a
0: system to stop. Exactly. Put a fucking huge-ass spoiler on the back of that gurney. (laughs) Maybe, like, do some lights, some, like, lights underneath. (laughs) You could trick out a fucking gurney, though. If they really did make them motorized, dude, can you imagine the customs on that shit? That would be so amazing.
1: Spinning rims is all I got to say. Spinning rims.
0: Listen, I actually maybe want to go to the hospital if that were the case. I'd be like, yo, I got like some black lights under here. I got like- For real. Big ass muffler in the back. <laughs> Spoiler on a- Got some s- some spinners. Me. Like, come on, this ah. is amazing. And
1: a recumbent bicycle flag. <laughs> Just waving in the breeze
0: as long as it doesn't say let's go brandon I'm chill that's all I'll say is there is there anything worse than the
1: comment here's the worst combination let's let's see if, if we can come to a consensus here the worst combination of things in the world for me is someone on a recumbent bike wearing toe shoes <laughs> wearing toe shoes flip-flopping <laughs> on a goddamn recumbent bike. I cannot think of anything that I want to see less in the world.
0: Dude, that look is just too much for me.
1: And you know, everyone on a recumbent bite looks like fucking riffraff from Rocky Horror. <laughs> including the guy I dated. <laughs> Including the guy
0: I dated who had one. They got mad gear. That's what I never understand, too, is that they got <laughs> mad gear. Also, yo, like speaking of California, Venice was the fucking spot for the recumbent bikes. Oh my God. And you're right. All those people were wearing those fucking weird ass toe shoes. They always wore like the squid outfit, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just sitting here going like, Dude, what is with this gear? It's insane.
1: It's a lot. And how aerodynamic do you need to be on a bike that goes two miles per hour?
0: Look, I think they were consulting Bodie from the Point Break remake with some of this shit. I'm just like, <laughs> keep the gear on the recumbent, please. I can't take it. <laughs> My chest tightened when you just suggested the toe shoes. That's what I mean. It is the worst imagery of our modern times. And you know, you know I love an REI, but come on. I got
1: limits. No one loves an REI more than Millie, but you <laughs> skip that whole section. You're skipping both of those sections. I know it.
0: I'm not putting flags on anything that moves unless it's like a boat. There's, there's definitely not on my bike.
1: No, I'm not putting flags. I will put a flag over my goddamn vagina before I put a flag on a moving vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I don't know what, what the flag would symbolize, but just like I would wear a pennant flag over my vagina before I would put one on a, on a vehicle. And don't get up in my DMs about recumbent bikes are good for the for the planet or they're good for your back. There are other ways. There are other options. And it's Black History Month, and I won't hear it. <laughs> We are
0: allowed to say it.
1: During Black History Month, I will hear nothing about my dislike of recumbent bikes and toe shoes. <laughs> but I would love to have seen the Crypt Keeper that was blocking traffic That would have been the perfect vehicle for him. Get Grandpa a recumbent bike and some toe shoes and send him on his way.
0: Look, if he can't even sit in a car hitting one pedal. Thank you. I don't know if he can sit basically laying down with his feet in the air. (laughs) (laughs) That's to me, I'm like, yo, how do you get the fuck in and out of a recumbent bike? They say, oh, it's good for your back. But you know you've got to get in and out of that shit. Like...
1: (laughs) I would rather slide out of a monster truck than get into or out of a fucking recumbent bike.
0: This is me going out of a truck. It's just basically falling down. (laughs)
1: Like you're going down one of those luges at a water park. Yes. (laughs) your fucking arms are crossed over your chest.
0: Let me slide on out of this shit. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, good. Well, on that note, it's Black History Month. (laughs) We're not talking about recumbent bikes. We're not talking toe shoes. We're getting grandpa off the streets. (laughs) And we're getting white people out of the golf carts. (laughs) But we're also <laughs> going to talk about some movies.
0: Well, yes, we. this is the second week of Black History Month here at I Saw What You Did. We had a great episode last week. We got another really, really good one this week. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about these fucking movies.
1: Oh, my goodness. The emotional torment we put ourselves through for this podcast is unparalleled, but worth it.
0: We do so much.
1: <laughs> do you want to tell these fine folks what our theme is.
0: Yes. So this week's theme is called Sanaa Lathan in Love. And
1: we, when we were texting today, I did say we could have an alternate theme, which would be, would you just cut the middleman and marry Sanaa Lathan already? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is so true, right? <laughs> but we got
1: <laughs> Sanaa Lathan in Love.
0: <laughs> okay. So just to, you know, be completest about this. So, when we were coming up with episodes for Black History Month, we thought, let's do a week about Black romance, okay? Yes. So we picked, like, two of our faves, and then we both realized that Sinhala Lathan was in both, <laughs> and she's playing basically the same character. Yeah, the plot's kind of
1: the same in both. <laughs> a lot of overlap, a lot of overlap, <laughs> yet yeah, two distinctly wonderful movies.
0: Oh, my God. I I can't tell you. I just... I want to ask you this question, not to like, you know, turn down the party mode, but I really have to ask you this question. I hope I'm not surprising you with this, but I just want to know your opinion. Why do you think it's important for us to talk about Black romance? Like, why is that something that is important for us to discuss?
1: I'm glad you raised this question, because I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching these films. And I think that what for me is the main takeaway is, and this is, it's going to sound so sad, but it's very true, is we need films, we need media that normalizes all aspects of Black emotional life so that we can be treated as full people. Yeah. So that we can stop being compartmentalized, we can stop being thought of in this very myopic way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, we need to show the full spectrum of emotion. And Black love, especially on screen, it's often shown with so much strife and there's always a hardship or some element of terror to it. So I think just like a straight up romantic movie is important.
0: Yeah. And and something to that end is that I mean this this goes without saying, but I think it should be repeated, which is that I think when you and I grew up certainly a lot of romance is about white people. Yes right? Like white romance is basically what everybody else watches when they watch film and television. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's changing a lot. And there are obviously moments where that's not the case, like in our movies. But for the most part, like, I think that it's just so much of like the narrative of love is for white people.
1: And it's true. It's like I I need to see it for my own benefit, but I need to see it for the benefit of the world. Like I need to remind myself that love is possible and that who I am and how I am is, well, not necessarily how I am because I am a dirtbag. It is very hard. (laughs) Dirtbags in love is a very difficult (laughs) equation to crack. (laughs) I'm a dirtbag, but I got a booming system. It's very confusing. But I do need to see these representations because I also feel like I saw this in my life. Like my grandparents were in love and, you know, my aunts and uncles were in love. And like I saw it in my life and I never saw it represented on screen and it bothered the fuck out of me. And I also think there's something about how we tend to talk about Black women in particular, which is why I'm very excited to talk about Ethan. We talk about Black women in love in particular as if they are carrying a burden of love. And so these two films did not feel like that to me. And it's, again, important, I think, to show the full spectrum of emotions that come with love for non-white people.
0: Yeah. And what I think is so cool about both these movies is that they were kind of made around the same era. Yes. Right? And there was kind of like a collection of films, really, that starred kind of this cast of people. Yeah. And it was kind of like within like a maybe five-year range, right? So you had like The Wood and you had The Best Man and you Mm -hmm. had Love and Basketball and you had Brown Sugar and, you know. So there was kind of this like cast of characters and, and essentially like Sanaa plays kind of the same character in both these movies, but it's also like a character that you're right. You just like don't see all the time. It's like- yeah. First of all, she's at, like, the top of her game, which is something you very rarely see within rom-coms in general, is that it's usually, like, the woman who is sort of waiting around for the man to save her. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. obviously, like, that time-honored fairy tale bullshit that we have all been indoctrinated into. But also just sort of, like, the idea that these are middle-class Black people that they're talking about how to find romantic love in their age group. So there's all these, like, different factors that is, like, so interesting to me and I just feel like these two movies in particular are like first of all like your movie Uh, I just have to say I wept pretty much from start to finish never saw it no way and I and I don't I don't know why that is because it is shockingly great like in in the moment where I was like I had no excuse to not see this film, and I, I just I just fell off my radar, and I just can't believe I spent so much time having not known how wonderful this film is. But I, I can't wait to get into that with you. But honestly, this week is going to be so interesting. I just really yeah. wanted to sort of, like, get your opinion about, like, why we're doing it, because, yeah. you know, I just feel like it's important for people to understand, like, why we come up with these themes, right?
1: Absolutely. And yours, too. Like, your opinion is incredibly crucial to this as well.
0: Well, I'm I'm very excited to discuss your film because you are going first!
1: I'm going first. I'm going for it. I love
0: when you're going first. <laughs> I love it when you go first, and I'm just, like, so excited.
1: You guys should listen. Listen to the episodes and see the energy level, the vibe change for Millie when she goes first.
0: <laughs> just need to pick up that moment. Yeah, and yeah, when I go first, I'm like... Oh, okay, God, here we go.
1: <laughs> blah, blah, blah. When Millie goes first, it's like she's wearing toe shoes and a recumbent bike.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but when you go first, I'm really Ruth Gordon. Relieved. Yeah, I'm just driving around, crashing into <laughs> shit, gleefully, gleefully.
1: <laughs> well, my film was released in the year 2000. It was written and directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. And the film is... Love and Basketball.
0: How about a little one-on-one? What are we playing for?
1: I score, you strip. Take it off. Take it off. Oh,
0: strip. All span, Love Basketball, baby.
1: Oh, man, I love this movie. Oh,
0: my God. No kidding.
1: I love this movie. I'm going to jump right in with my one-sentence synopsis. Do it. Two lifelong friends learn about life and love, making up and breaking up, and complicated family dynamics while trying to pursue their ultimate dream of making it to the NBA and also, Boris Kojo is there.
0: <laughs> He's in my movie, too. He's in your movie, too, playing the same dude. <laughs> the same dude.
1: And also, Boris Kojo is there. <laughs> I have to start out by saying that Sanaa Latham is the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. Like, the most gorgeous person on the planets, (laughs) is aging like fine wine, and is just so naturally gorgeous. She's very captivating. Like, I like watching her on screen. And she's very emotional. She pulls emotions out of me like very few actors can. She's very good at her craft and beautiful. And so she is, she's kind of the star of the show here, which again is, to Gina Prince-Bythewood's credit, she created this film that centers the woman's narrative through her experience of love without making it saccharine without making it sappy without making it you know a, a story where someone has to give up a big part of themselves in order to regain some kind of love in their life and i adore it i adore this movie it is so unique it is part of the criterion collection now Ugh. which is so crucial for the livelihood of not just this film but of of supporting black creators and there is a an essay by Roxanne Gay on Criterion.com about Love and Basketball. It's called Love and Basketball for Your Heart. And it is absolutely worth a read. I'm going to read a little bit of it here just to kind of center the film a little bit. So Roxanne Gay says, and I quote, Monica is strong, independent, and interesting, but still there is room for softness in her life. As in many fictional love stories, Monica and Quincy, who grow up together— Don't particularly care for each other when they first meet, but over the years, they develop a tentative friendship that finally blooms into love when they allow themselves to see each other as the people they have become instead of who they were when they first met. The whole essay is great, but I really love that part of what she said because. This is the premise of the film, where we have Monica, uh, who moves to the Baldwin Hills area of Los Angeles with her family. Her older older sister is played by Regina Hall in a really, like, understated but pivotal role. Like, I really loved Regina Hall in this film. Mm -hmm. And the boys in the neighborhood are very excited because they have heard there's some new people moving in. But as these boys are playing this pickup game of basketball— I believe it's Quincy, but it might have been one of the other kids who says, oh, but they're girls. And so when Monica shows up and she's got this baseball cap pulled down and she's kind of walking with a little bit of little bit of style, and they think, oh, maybe it is a boy. And she's like, I wanna play basketball. And they give her shit instantly. As soon as she takes that hat off and that hair comes out, they are scrapping. And she not only holds her own, but is incredibly good at basketball Mm -hmm. and fights with Quincy right away. One thing I instantly loved about this movie is that Gina Prince-Bythewood wrote Sanaa Lathan's scar into the screenplay. So Sanaa Lathan had a childhood scar on her cheek. And in the beginning of the film, you see Quincy check her while they're playing basketball during this game so hard that she falls down and her face is bloody and it leaves the scar. So I just thought that was just kind of a nice, beautiful little little touch.
0: Wow, that's f- amazing. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, like really nice artistic touch. So they grow up across, the sh- they grow up right across the street from each other. Like their houses, the way their houses are set up, their bedroom windows face each other. And there's something about them that they are connected right away. And so the next day, as Quincy picks up Monica for school, and she's wearing a dress, and her mom did her hair, and she's kind of looking the part that her mom wants her to play. And he's like, "I think we should date." And she's like, "Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and like what does that mean? He's like it means we kiss for like 5 seconds. And then they do, they kiss, but then they instantly get into a fight because he's like you should ride my bike because my dad drives my mom around. It's just like this weird, it's just so funny and so sweet and so childlike in its logic. Yeah. And Monica as we find out, is a hothead and she has a temper and she's got a mouth and she told him exactly where he could go and they spend so much of this movie tussling on the ground. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Even later on when they're older (laughs) and dating, like they are tussling. (laughs) She is scrappy. So I just kind of like love that setup of their relationship instantly where it's not going to be an easy love and it's not always going to be a romantic love, but they're connected from the start. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I also really loved about the beginning part of the film, where they use, you know, kind of the younger actors and not Sanaa Lathan and Omar Epps, is that you really get an instant look at the family dynamic. Because like you said, these are all middle-class families. Monica's family, her dad works for a bank. Her mom's a homemaker. And you can tell right away that like her older sister's really supportive and kind of always wants to help her do her hair and kind of do like some of the stuff, like the girlier stuff. Mm-hmm. Her dad is super cool with her being into basketball. Her mom cannot stand it. And her mom is played by Alfre Woodard in, again, an incredible role. Totally pivotal. Yeah, And her mom can't stand it. And her mom says things like, and this has always stuck in my head because I have heard these words come out of my grandmother's mouth to me. At one point in the bedroom, Monica's getting her hair done for school the next day. And her mother says, you would be pretty if you did something with that head. And this is kind of like, Monica takes it as an affront to who she is. But as the movie progresses, what you really see is that Mom wants Monica to have a balance. So she sees her daughter more fully than we realize in the beginning. It does seem kind of like she's just like a menace in Monica's life, but then as the film goes on, you see that she's she's trying to impart the only wisdom that she has and she's trying to impart these these kind of smaller moments of wisdom that she has that Monica's not really receptive to, but it doesn't stop her from trying to be a mom in that way. Yeah, which I just really loved. And Monica, again, she is scrappy. She loves the number 32 because that's Magic Johnson's number. And then you've got Quincy. And Quincy's dad is a basketball player. Um, They live in a very chic house. And (laughs) we learn that, you know, his family is upscale but also kind of patriarchal. Um, but we also learned very early on that Quincy is a star. Like, he has this ego that's just inherent in who he is. And he kind of has the safety of his family and this the celebrity of his father to fall back on to support that ego. There's a very funny scene when Quincy's mom comes over to kind of welcome <laughs> Monica's family to the neighborhood. She brings this cake, this fake and bake, as, as Zeke his dad calls it, because she just buys a store-bought cake and, like, puts it on a platter. <laughs> mm. And the two kids are talking, and Monica's like, um, yeah, your dad might be a basketball player, but he plays for the Clippers, which is the worst team. Like, she is on <laughs> it. Like, they've just met. They've just met. He scarred her for life, and she has demolished his dad yeah. in the span of, like, hours. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I think that's a big part of the movie, too, is that Quincy, you know, has this pedigree, mm-hmm. right? Because he's his dad is a professional NBA player. He's obviously on that path. He's attractive. He's talented. Everybody, you know, gives him a lot of attention. And essentially, Monica is the only person that really sees him and is willing to, like, really call him out on some shit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's basically, like, taking him down a peg or two. Like, at every chance she's got, and it is a joy because you're just (laughs) like, wow, here's a girl that's not afraid of this guy. She's not afraid of him. She's not afraid of sort of like, you know, his situation with his parents who are very supportive of his path, his basketball path, you know? And, you know, she's just like, fuck it. And she's not afraid
1: of herself. She's not afraid of her own voice to say what she means. And it kind of gets her in trouble because the movie is set up in quarters, just like a basketball game, guys, in case you don't watch basketball. Uh, So this first quarter is like this young childhood, them just meeting and kind of coming together together um story. But then as they get the next quarter is about high school. The second quarter of the film is about high school, and you can see in high school that Monica is not getting she plays just as well if not better than Q, but she's not getting the same accolades. And she's not getting what she thinks she deserves in terms of what she wants the trajectory of her life to be. So she's having a very hard time getting recruited, even though there are scouts in the audience when she's playing these games. Because she has this temper. Right. And because she doesn't, again, like, she's not afraid of her own voice. She doesn't hold back. And she says what she, what she means. So if a ref makes a bad call, she tells him about it. And everyone in her, in her life is telling her to calm down, especially Quincy. He's like, you know, you'd be great if you just, you know, kind of controlled that temper. So it's Quincy. It's her mom. It's her sister. It's like everyone in her life is telling her that she's too much in that way. But then there's this beautiful scene where you get to be in Monica's head as she plays a game. And it truly helps you understand why she pushes herself so hard, but you also understand her anger and you also understand her frustration. And again, that those to me are like these very understated but pivotal moves that Gina Prince-Bythewood made as a writer to be able to communicate who this person is. Right. So who you see on the outside is not what's, the only thing that's happening on the inside. There's more going on on the inside, and she's reserved. Like Monica doesn't show that to everybody, but it's still there. So I loved that scene of watching her play that game. Yeah. And the high school scenes are all great um, because mm. it's in the 80s. It's in 1988 when they're in high school, and there is a pivotal school dance that happens. Oh. And let me tell you, it is not an 80s school dance if there is not 85 yards of peplum. <laughs> so many peplum tops and dresses and everybody was saying ho <laughs> every five minutes it's hey ho." that is the 80s in a nutshell an 80s school dance in a nutshell
0: the scene of when they open the doors to the gym and johnny camps just got paid is playing and everybody's dancing i was like thank you shivers it was so great such a great like film moment you know what i mean like a montage moment Oh, completely, completely transported
1: back to that time. Like, it was be- yeah. just beautiful and just so fun to watch. And then, like, my prerogative starts playing and you're like, oh, my God, now Bob and Brown. But- <laughs> 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 I remember dancing my goddamn ass off to my prerogative in sixth
0: grade. Oh, my God. It was like that. Don't even get me started. <laughs> like, the-, the New Jack swing era was, like, my shit. I was obsessed with that when I was a kid. So...
1: We, again, would have been such good friends in school, because I for <laughs> sure thought I was going to be, like, an MC Hammer backup dancer when I was in sixth and seventh grade. Yeah. <laughs> like, a goth, black, yeah. <laughs> MC Hammer, New Jack backup dancer.
0: I mean, I definitely, there were, like, I connected to this film on so many different points, but, like, one of the points was definitely the music. Oh, like the soundtrack. Such great music on on this movie.
1: The soundtrack is incredible, I think, for both of our films.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But this film especially. It's a scene that you you constantly see in movies about young white people where you kind of have a Cinderella moment where Monica has gotten dressed up. Her Lena, her older sister, has set her up with a college guy. Boris Kojo, Mm -hmm. uh, to go to this dance with. And she's wearing this dress, and she's wearing her grandmother's pearls. And she is just like, again, that blossoming Cinderella moment. She's super uncomfortable. There is the funniest, one of the funniest scenes of this movie is when she's sitting at the dance when he goes to get her punch. And she sits down like she's sitting on the bench at a game. (laughs) So like she's leaning with her elbows on her knees, and these guys walk by, and they're like, hey. And then she just kind of crosses her legs real quick. But that's how she's comfortable. Exactly, exactly. And then it's this beautiful scene too because Quincy has decided to go to the dance with Gabrielle Union (laughs) because she has big boobs, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And we get to see that this side of Quincy in high school where he's just a total player. Like girls throw themselves at him. They use Monica to get to him. Like Gabrielle Union's character gave Monica this note and was like, hey, you should talk to your boy because they know that they're friends. But Quincy really sees... Monica as a whole woman, like in this scene. And Gabrielle Union is not happy <laughs> about it <laughs> at all. Uh, but what, what happens where the movie kind of takes this turn is they go home and they're each in their bedrooms and they're talking to each other through the window. And then they kind of meet outside. She got this letter, <laughs> and she she finds out that she gets into USC and he's also going to USC. And this kind of bedroom moment. It's very sweet because we also, prior to this, saw a scene where when Quincy's parents are fighting, he knocks on her bedroom window. And she lets him in and he sleeps on the floor and they have like a whole rhythm to it. So you know that he's done that a lot. Yeah. So there's this real sweetness between seeing that and it's like you only see those moments in like, again, like movies about white people from the suburbs or Taylor Swift videos. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You never get that sweet moment between black teenagers. Yeah. So I just, I loved it. I love the use of the bedroom windows there. And then she loses her virginity to him while she's wearing her grandma's pearls, y'all, scandalous. Mm. But, It is one of the most emotional sex scenes I've ever seen in a film. It's probably the only sex scene to make me cry.
0: Oh my gosh, no kidding.
1: It is so beautiful. You've got a cover of Kate Bush's This Woman's Work playing in the background, which is enough to send me into fits to begin with. Oh my gosh. But it's gorgeous. I think this is that moment that Roxane Gay was talking about in her essay, where this is where they finally see each other as who they are and not who they grew up with. Yeah. Um, So it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. And it doesn't mean that it's easy for them, though, because the third quarter of the movie is showing them at USC, and they're both going through their very own, like, very unique struggles. They're both playing basketball, but Monica, again, is having a hard time. And she forms a friendship with this woman named Sidra on the team, who is very quick to tell her that she was the last pick, that she only got picked because someone else on the team got pregnant. And she's really struggling with, yeah, I got in, I got recruited. That was the first hurdle. But now she's seeing that there are 45 more hurdles down the line. But they're dating, and she's happy, and, like, they're happy. There's a very hot scene where they're just kind of subtly icing each other in in Quincy's dorm room. (laughs) And then they play strip basketball. I love it. Because, again— We rarely see these scenes where people are so horny to Bone that they will just make up games to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that is usually reserved for white people.
0: Yeah. There were so many moments of the film that were very, I don't know, like, sublime, almost, like, in these ways. Like, the scenes where they were, you know, sort of having sex or they were about to or, like, you know, being physical with each other— I mean, it just was not like something you would expect. No. You just would not expect, like, especially in, in any movie about like college kids or high schoolers to be sort of that tender mm-hmm. necessarily. So it's just that thing where you're just like, these moments are just so extra special and yes. they're so great. They're so great. And it's, And I think it's important too to punctuate that we're not saying
1: or mentioning this because we think it's a rarity for it to happen in Black films. I think what we're saying is it's a rarity for those films to be made. Yeah. The films are written. People are writing those films. People are wanting those films. It is a rarity for them to be produced and for you to see them. But yeah, I loved it. I just love that. It's just such a sexy. ...movie without being overwrought... ...and it felt like how sex feels when it's new to you. Yeah. So it was just very, very cool. And in in college, you also realize that Quincy is struggling... ...he has his own struggles... ...because he's realizing that his dad is not a good guy. And he's not this kind of hero that he put on this pedestal... ...for all of his life. That guy doesn't exist. So his dad retired from the NBA, became a scout... And kind of started cheating on his mom. And he's involved in this paternity suit. And it's clear that, you know, Zeke's been cheating on Nona for a while. And Quincy has a bad game, but it's because his ego is completely shattered. So he decides to drop out of school and go, go pro, but not before breaking Monica's heart. Because again, crucial scene in this film. She's consoling him. On the heels of him finding out of this stuff about his dad. But she has a curfew and her coach wants them to be home by 11. So she tells him that and he shuts down completely. So this is someone who has been there supporting him genuinely for most of his life. But in this one instance where she chooses herself first, he cannot handle it. And it's a very interesting study of masculinity. And it's a very interesting study of love because she chooses herself. And he kind of, again, like he acts like a jerk, breaks her heart. But then they go into the fourth quarter of the movie. And Monica's in Barcelona. And she's playing pro because most pro women have to play overseas. You know, they, for a long time, were not able to make money here. The WNBA didn't exist for a long time. When it did, it was in its infancy. It was deeply underfunded. It is still deeply underfunded. But she goes to Barcelona to play. And she's she's really isolated. But it's her only chance to play for a living. So she kind of is toughing it out. And you get to see this really interesting reconnection that she has with Sidra, where they're talking, you know, not as competitors, but as teammates. And... It's two women who are really talking about, you know, Monica's kind of saying like, you know, don't you miss home? And Sidra's like, yeah, but what's what's our only option? Like, you know, there are, some of the people that we played with, some of our teammates are at home and they're working at bookstores. And like, you don't get to play if you go home. But Monica does, Monica does go home. And part of the reason she goes home is because Quincy, who has been playing pro, but not doing very well at it, he's kind of a stringer and he gets a big injury. He tears his ACL. So she goes home mm-hmm. to see him, only to find out that he's engaged to Tyra Bay.
0: (laughs) Shaking my fist. Nobody's seeing it right now, but I'm shaking my fist.
1: She's shaking her fist. And again, he he's so cold about it. Like, he's so cold about not revealing that he is entangled with someone, which is something I have had experience with. <laughs> but he he's just not revealing it. And so he just kind of leaves her there hanging. And so she's come home thinking possibly she's going to rekindle something with him or at least be the support for him that he needs, that she knows he needs. And he leaves her twisting. So she kind of comes home and she's, you know, to her house. And she's shocked by this engagement. And she gets, there's a real tender scene between her and her mom here, which is hilarious. Because at one point, Monica curses. And Alfred Woodard says, "Oh no, are they cursing their mamas in Spain? Like, <laughs> did you forget where you come from?" Oh, I laughed at that. <laughs> but there's so much revealed in that scene because the crux of Monica's friction with her mother is that she says, "I don't like that you never stood up for yourself," and her mother kind of has to course correct there and say to her, "You know that you might have seen it like that, but that's not what was happening." and kind of explains to her what it means to be in love, what it means to be in a family, and really just asks for Monica to respect her and meet her at her level the way that she's always met Monica at her level. So again, we'll not reveal the end of this movie, but I will say there is an incredible one-on-one game, (laughs) a true battle for the heart, and the ending of this film makes me cry every time. Oh my God. And it's just, again, like it truly is a story of... This woman's drive to have the life she wants on her terms and what she goes through to get it. And I just think it's a beautiful film. It's a romantic movie, deeply romantic movie, but it's also a sports film, but it's also, you know, about 80s hip hop and Black culture. And it's a wonderfully contained film that tells a very succinct story in the, these beautiful and modulated ways. I just, I love this movie.
0: Oh my God. Cannot tell you how much I loved this film. Like I said in the intro, like I never saw it when it came out. This is my first viewing. I feel like a fuck. An idiot for not having seen it before. And quite frankly, I mean, I'm just so glad that it came out on Criterion Collection. And I'm not just saying it's on their website. This is like they created a Blu ray of this film. Yes. Which is so important because I think that that means that this movie is going to be seen by people that are part of this kind of, like, cinephile, quote-unquote, cinephile world. Mm-hmm. And they need to see this movie because it is a part of this universe. Like, it should be a part of some kind of, certainly, a sports film canon because yeah. this movie is so intense. I mean, this easily could have been a pick for movies about sports, but not really. There's this moment where it feels so original in a sense that you very rarely get to see women's sports films like this right yes and i'm not talking about dancing i'm not talking about like gymnastics this is a basketball player this is a quote-unquote male sport mm-hmm. and you're seeing a woman basically like traverse it the gender reversal of this type of sports film is so fucking fresh yes. like i'm just like this is such a great take and when i tell you that i wept <laughs> i i Fucking cried the lip. The bottom lip was trembling many times. I got to tell you, it really hit me on so many points emotionally because I mean, Don't even get me started. Like, I played sports when I was a kid, and I played them in high school. Mm -hmm. I also had a sister who was girlier and prettier than me. And I had a mom who was kind of, like, always trying to get me to, like, comb my hair and, you know, like, (laughs) stop looking like a tomboy. And the scene at the very beginning when she gets pushed down by the boys, I mean, that happened to me many times. It's brutal. I got beat up by boys a lot when I was a kid. And it's because, I think, in that same moment where they just can't, like, process her, like, they're just like, she's weird, she's trying to be a guy, we gotta, like, we can't figure this out, so let's just hurt her.
1: Exactly.
0: And it's just like this moment, God, I had this total flashback to being a kid. And I just, that feeling of sort of like not understanding like why I couldn't just like do the thing that these boys were doing. Yes. And I think that that's why the rest of the film felt so emotional to me because she has the physical scar Mm -hmm. of that moment on her face that was essentially given to her by this guy that she loves. Yes. And It's just this, like, moment, especially, like, when they're in their more tender scenes, that it just floored me. Like, I just was, like, truly beside myself, like, crying. Yes. Like, I hate to say it, I was a mess. And it's
1: unexpected to be a mess, because you're like, this is a movie about basketball, and then you're like, why am I weeping every five minutes?
0: Yes. That, and that, that is like what I love about this movie so much is that it was such a surprise to me, like how emotional and deep it was. And and then, of course, all the stuff with the mom. I mean, that whole uh. scene of the two of them in the kitchen and the, and the mom having that sort of moment where she's communicating to her like, yeah, I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do, but I also had a family and I had to make certain like... Mm-hmm concessions for that. And I wanted to be the kind of mom that gave you my mom's pearls when you were going out on your dance. And if I was working, I wouldn't have been able to do that. It was just so great and just so wonderful. And I loved this movie. Ah! I'm so
1: glad! I didn't know you hadn't seen it before. That's such a special moment. Yeah.
0: And it's truly one of those movies where I'm like, why did I fuck that up? Why did (laughs) I not see that? (laughs) Ah! Because I would have been obsessed with it all throughout my 20s and 30s. Like, I would have been, like, right. you know, going to the Love and Basketball fucking convention, wearing my, like, Gabrielle Union Band-Aid dress or whatever to the fucking... I mean, I, I, would have, I would have gone down the convention rabbit hole with this film. That's how much I loved it.
1: Look, it's never too late. You can now obsess over it in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. <laughs> you could be on that hospital gurney in that dress with your canoe paddle. <laughs> it is never too late this film will stand the test of time it already has and it is here for us throughout all the stages of our lives
0: I couldn't have picked a better movie in my mind for this theme Yay. but also just for me like you just picked a great movie for me to watch yeah and I needed to watch it Aww. and I'm so glad I did
1: that makes me so happy good well your movie is also nothing to scoff at <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'll just say, we turned the intensity down slightly, but I actually did cry at my movie too. Yeah. So there we go. We're some tender bitches. <laughs> we are some tender bitches. You crack the rocks on the outside with your little ball peen <laughs> hammer, and we're just caramel, sugar, and whipped meringue or something. We're just very, <laughs> we're very tender. So my film for the theme, Sanal Lathan in Love, is a movie from 2002. It was written by Michael Elliott and Rick Famuyiwa. Directed by Rick Famuyiwa, it's called Brown Sugar. Uh, I remember the exact day I met Dre and fell in love with the music. y'all, look Look what they doing over there. And as we grew up, uh, the music grew with us. So unlike Love and Basketball, I have seen this movie a lot. (laughs) It's one of those cable staples. Definitely.
1: For a while. So like, it was always on.
0: (laughs) Oh, 100%. Now, okay, y'all know me by this point, I hope. I'm a sucker for rom-coms that either are about two people from opposite sides of the tracks (laughs) falling in love or two people who knew each other as kids and end up together. Come on.
1: And now you have two movies in one episode that have done just that.
0: (laughs) I know, my heart has fucking exploded. I mean, listen, this film, I I have watched it so many times, and i just love the premise of it and like this just this eternal rom-com premise that will never be fucking old to me i mean that's why i've seen sweet home alabama <laughs> as much as i care to admit i just fucking love it i fucking love that movie <laughs> you have a baby in a bar i fucking love that movie <laughs> a baby in a bar melanie linsky <laughs> but look so this so brown sugar is kind of a reunion film in a way for a lot of the actors I mean it's basically like The Wood Mm -hmm. which was also directed by the same director so you got Taye Diggs and Sanaa Lathan I mean Omar Epps is also in The Wood so it's just (laughs) like this like I said before it's just this whole like cast of actors that were in the same movies together for a while
1: it's the black romance cinematic universe yes the BRMC which used to be the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club or the BRCU, the BRCU, but uh, <laughs> we're changing it. We're
0: changing it. <laughs> it's changed. <laughs> oh my God. Well, let me just give a one sentence synopsis real quick. So, this is a one sentence synopsis of Brown Sugar. Childhood friends, Sid, played by Sonal Lathan, and Dre, played by Tate Diggs, grew up together with a mutual passion for classic era hip hop and find that the love for the music and each other. Also brings them together as adults.
1: Beautiful. And also Boris Kojo is
0: there. (laughs) And also Boris Kojo's is in it. Fuck. Very crucial to the one sentence synopsis. (laughs) So, okay. I don't know if you youngsters out there know what an around-the-way girl is. Pause. (laughs) Pause for reflection. Essentially, Sanaa Lathan is playing, again... The Girl from Around the Way, as talked about in the LL Cool J song. Thank you. And this movie, the beginning of this movie, is almost kind of like this mini documentary that's set inside the film Uh. where you got a bunch of hip-hop artists like Common and the dudes from De La Soul and the dudes from The Roots and Method Man Uh. and Jermaine Dupri, all these people. Pete Rock, his little adorable ass. Yes. You got a whole smattering of all these hip hop artists. And they're talking about the old school music that they loved. Right. And this is kind of setting the tone for what this movie is going to be about, which is essentially hip hop and the love of old school and kind of true school hip hop, I guess is the best way to put it. Now, after this whole section, it cuts to kind of young Sid and young Dre, like, I don't know, elementary, middle school age. They're in New York And they're just kind of running around in the neighborhood, taking in, like, the sights and sounds of everything. Like, there's people playing basketball, and there's people breakdancing. It's, like, the early 80s. -hmm. And then they see this group of rappers freestyling on the corner, and it's basically the real-life Slick Rick, Dana Dane, and Dougie Fresh. And they're basically themselves playing themselves from the 80s.
1: Which... I adored. I did too. There's no makeup. There's no prosthetics. They're just like, yeah, we used to do this and now we're doing this again. Here we are. Yes.
0: Slick Rick still wearing that eye patch. Like
1: Slick Rick. I, let me tell you, I have a Slick Rick story.
0: Oh my God. That's so exciting.
1: <laughs> It'll be quick. But when I lived in Harlem, I would go to this Starbucks on the corner of 125th sometimes and Slick Rick would frequently be in there. Wow. And I was like, all right, like I noticed him. And I'm like, oh my God hip-hop royalty, right right there at a Starbucks. And then one day I went in and he came in behind me. So because he came in behind me, I was able to say like, hey man, I'll get your drink. What are you drinking today? And um, he was like, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. And I was like, no, it's okay. Like, what do you, what do you want? And he's got that like, you yeah, that gruff voice. And I'm like, no, it's like my pleasure. Like, what would you like to drink? And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. And then because we were talking, I think it gave other people in The Starbucks license to kind of talk to him because they saw him like interacting with someone. And when I tell you the man was mobbed, he left. I was like, I'm sorry, I just wanted to buy you a coffee. He left. He was like, I cannot deal with this shit at a Starbucks today. I should never have talked to this weird tall lady.
0: You made that first domino fall and then the rest of the shit, it just went crazy.
1: Mobbed. But he was so sweet and like very, again, such a distinctive personality and such a true hero of hip hop.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely like one of the best to ever do it. But listen, when, when Young, Sid and Dre see this happening, it just sets him on this path. Right. Yes. Because you from there you cut to modern day, where Sid, who was a music writer for the LA Times, she got this job, this amazing once-in-a-lifetime job. She's the editor-in-chief of Double XL Magazine, which is a very prominent hip-hop magazine. Mm-hmm. It's a real magazine, by the way. <laughs> and at the same time, she's also writing this book, right? And the book is about her sort of lifelong love of hip-hop, which is also just kind of the running narration of the film is just kind of her reading from this book, right? So she leaves L.A., moves back to New York, where Dre is now an a guy for this big, broad rap record label called Millennium Records. And they're still best friends. Like, that's the thing is they, they never stopped being best friends. But since they've been living on opposite coasts, right— When she comes back to New York, it's this kind of, like, big homecoming for them, and she's excited to see him, and she's kind of noticing how he's grown up, and he's just become a man, and that's all this stuff, and it's great, but she finds out that Dre has a girlfriend... And it's Nicole Ari Parker. hmm She's a beautiful lawyer named Reese. And Sanaa Lathan is like hitting the guts by this information. <laughs> well, because he also is
1: like, I am proposing tonight. Welcome home.
0: <laughs> yes. I'm going to propose a Russell Simmons party in front of a staircase right now. Like, immediately right now. And listen, (laughs) I think, I do
1: think that it is completely possible, obviously, for people to be friends with opposite sex, people they're attracted to, whatever. I think it's, of course, possible.
0: Sure. Genuinely,
1: nobody wants to see your engagement ring, except for the person (laughs) you're proposing to.
0: Listen, I'm not a jewelry chick, but, like, I never notice rings. Like, I'm just like, I don't know. Do people have them? Do they wear them?
1: Yeah, nobody wants to see it. Especially this woman who's been in love with you, low-key, For your whole life.
0: (laughs) Yeah. She's like, I don't care about this ring. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, I just met this woman.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And here's the thing. So she gets invited to the wedding shower, and she's just stuffing her face with food. She's (laughs) pretending to be happy about this shit going on between Dre and Reese, right? Which is a move. (laughs) But of course, she's not happy. And here's the thing. Crucially, Dre is not happy. Exactly. Or he is at least fucking lying to himself. Because wouldn't you know, they're hanging out again. Trey and Sid, and they're reminiscing about being kids. They're talking about how complicated their adult lives have become and blah, blah, blah. And guess what? They end up kissing the night before his wedding. Thank
1: you. And look, you know who has something to say about that? Queen Latifah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I have so much to say about her. I will approach that in just a moment because we are talking the fuck <laughs> out of Queen Latifah right now. But look, first of all, Saddle Lathan opens the door in a towel or like a wrap or some shit. Yeah, like some tie dye look. Little... With her windows open to the yeah. street. In Brooklyn. Sexy living in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs>
1: You're like taking this scene. You know what's gonna happen. You don't just open a fucking door with a towel and your windows are open and the curtains are flapping in the breeze. Like you got this sexy ass brownstone.
0: Yo, some of my best friends are guys. Straight guys, in fact. I would never answer the door in a towel. I don't care. I would never do it. It just it ain't happening.
1: See, this is where the dirtbag in me kicks in. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I would answer a door naked. I don't give a fuck. You're going to interrupt my day? You get what you get.
0: So you can imagine, okay, what's going on here is that they're trying to stifle this lifelong connection, which is not working, by the way, (laughs) because Sid sort of maybe in a reaction to this marriage that has happened. She starts dating this basketball player named Kelby Dawson, who was played by Boris Cocho, of course. Who is married to Nicole Ari Parker in real life. Exactly, exactly. And the thing about this... Entire farce is that Dre and Sid, they're in relationships with people that they have nothing in common with. And then also just like their partners like don't really support them yes. very much. Like they just don't. I mean, listen, you cannot like the music that I don't like, but when the music is my entire fucking life, <laughs> like you don't get it, it's kind of this thing where you're like, shit, like, should we be together? Yes. And also Kelby,
1: Kelby goes so over the top. <sighs> when he's wooing her, you know, like, he he goes so over the top in a way that, like, didn't even feel like Sid from the moment they met, where he was just, like, the onslaught of flowers. Like, I'm gonna send you 15 dozen roses, and I'm gonna rent out a restaurant and cook for you. And, like, it's just too much. And none of it is, that's all him. That's all the facade of Kelby. yeah, It's not anything to do with Sid. So right off the bat, you're like, why are these two together?
0: There was a moment where I thought, you know what, he he is not so bad, right? He's a little corny right. or whatever, and he doesn't really kind of have that, like, funniness to him. And I thought, I don't know, is she making a mistake by not entertaining this relationship? But then when he reveals at some point that he wants to be an athlete rapper, oh my God. I knew. I was like, Sydney is not going for this guy, especially when his whole, like, pitch is, I got marriage on my menu.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> That is the worst drunk confession in movie history. I wanna be an athlete rapper. Cause he's just like getting tipsy, proposed to her, and is like, P.S. Now that you got that ring on,
0: let me tell the world. Can we rock? What's up, Doc? Like, that's his whole thing. Where he's basically like, I wanna be in the fooshnikins. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking to the editor in chief of Double XL Magazine. That's all I gotta say. It was doomed.
1: It was doomed from that point. Totally doomed. And this is, this is a bad rap. <laughs> He's a bad rapper in a movie that has like, two characters called Red and Ten that refer to themselves as the hip-hop Dalmatians. And his bad rap still stood out above that.
0: Okay. <laughs> we have to talk about the new recording artists at Millennium Records. We have to talk about this. Because first of all, to set this whole part up. So they're both with these people that are obviously wrong for them. At one point, Dre figures out that he's been selling out to the man. He's working at Millennium Records, and Wendell Pierce is his boss, and Wendell Pierce <laughs> is telling him that he is going to sign this rap group called the Hip Hop Dalmatians, and it's basically this like white guy and this black guy, and they are just so stupid.
1: And their whole gimmick is like, we're about unity, man. Like, I'm going to wear a black coat with white spots, and he's going to wear a white coat with black spots for unity. And it is a mess.
0: It cracks me up every time I see this film. And the last day of Dre's job, like the day where he just walks out, is when he's in the recording studio, (laughs) when the hip-hop Dalmatians are recording an updated version to... (laughs) The classic tune, The Girl Is Mine by Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, and they call it The Ho Is Mine. (laughs) That is Dre's last day. He's like, yo,
1: I (laughs) quit. Look, we have all had those moments on certain jobs, and from now on, we have to call them The Ho Is Mine moments. (laughs) Like, what happened? I thought she was happy in that job. Girl, The Ho Is Mine happened. The
0: Ho Is Mine. (laughs) I can't. Oh, my God. I can't. Oh my god. I, I was like, yes. I I I was like, good for you, Trey. Go out and start that new label. Go. You cannot <laughs> rock with this at all. These guys are fucking so bad. And they're making you look bad. Making you look bad. And look, I mean, here's what I'm going to say. The rest of this film is sort of like, okay, for people that like rom-coms, yes, this is our territory. We know how this is going to go. We know that they're going to figure out that the people that they're with are not the people and there's going to be this big moment where they reconnect and they figure out that, you know, it was all about hip-hop and all about their childhood and all about sort of the essence of what's great about the music and themselves. And this is we know this is how it's going, right? Because really, it's kind of like, who are they fooling with any of this? It's just a matter of time. When are you going to marry Sonali? Come on. Cut the (laughs) middleman. Cut the middleman. But the thing I love about this movie is that I feel like it is more like a throwback to, like, classic screwball romance, almost. Yes. It's kind of like it doesn't have this, like, super uber modern romance feel where it's like, I mean, this is probably pre-dating apps, really. I mean, 2002, maybe. But it's like, I don't know. I just feel like modern rom-coms are so, like, in the modern moment that they kind of, like, lose a little bit of that charm. And I feel like yeah. Brown Sugar has that, like, kind of old-school movie romance moment. And here's the thing. This movie, it's like a Frank Capra movie starring Black people. Yes! It's amazing. And Taye Diggs is essentially like a Cary Grant of this film. I mean, he's handsome, he's stylish, but he's super charming and funny. Yes. Like, his comic timing in this movie is so fucking good.
1: Impeccable.
0: And then you got probably my two favorite people in this entire movie, Queen Latifah and Yazine Bey, who at that moment was still going by Steph. I think if you don't know Yazzie and you know maybe as most i not sure. But they play kind of like the sidekick characters to both Sid and Dre. Yes. And they feel very much like old screwball comedy characters in that way. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely.
1: Like that scene at the wedding where Francine is like trying to get Sid to say, don't get married. Like at that part where they always say, is there anyone who objects to this marriage? And they're like kind of bickering back and forth and people are telling them to shush. And she, at one point, when Sid is moving in, is like, girl, you are turning into a Terry McMillan character. She just has these fire (laughs) lines about, like, you got to get out there. It's like she's pushing her friend to be more and to do more, but not in a way that's bullying. It's just very much like, you know, we're cousins. I know you. Get out there. But it is absolutely the kind of role that Queen Latifah excels at because it's so funny and, again, so subtle.
0: Right. And, like, listen, if y'all heard the... Set it off episode from a few months ago. You know how much we love Queen Latifah. Legend. Okay. We love her in all of her roles, be it romantic sidekicks or like fun people that are going to drive a Suburban through a bank. Okay. We love her. But also, Yazine Bey is, I got to say, such an incredibly likable actor. Yes. I mean, there's this scene where he talks about the movie Casablanca in the funniest way ever. Okay. (laughs)
1: That is what's in my notes. I'm like, Yassine Bey's description of Casablanca brought me to my knees.
0: I mean, look, it is so adorable watching him try to mack on Queen Latifah so fucking hard in this movie. It's so badly. The whole scene where he's talking about like <laughs> champagne flutes, like the history of champagne flutes. It's so <laughs>
1: charming. It is a delight. They are both delightful in this film.
0: Oh, my God. They're they're my favorite. Love a sidekick in a rom-com. Like, those are always, like, typically my favorite characters. Plus, the song that he does for the film, because in the film, he's a up-and-coming hip-hop artist. Like, so, you know, obviously, Dre has, like, been at Millennium Records peddling <laughs> the hip-hop Dalmatians, and he wants to get back to, like, real authentic hip-hop. And so he meets the Yazine Bay character who's doing, like, real shit and he's a cab driver in new york and so basically dre's like begging him to like be on his new label and x y and z and it takes a while for him to warm up but then eventually he's just like really working for his guy and he's just basically like his character you know sort of meets like everybody through dre and right. he just kind of starts developing a crush on queen latifah and uh he is younger than her and he's just all about that shit and it's so <laughs> funny it's a-
1: it's adorable. And it again, it's truly, I love those moments in movies too, where like the sidekicks get together to try to plan like, all right, look, the main characters are fucking up. What are we going to do? So yeah. in those moments, they come together because the main characters are screwing up so badly. Yeah. It's adorable.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, listen, this movie is so charming and great to me, like I said, because it does feel like a kind of old 1940s rom-com, like a screwball romance, right? Mm-hmm. Frank Capra, you know, Preston Sturge is like that kind of era, right? But also, just like in Love and Basketball, there is some really great sort of gender reversal stuff happening here, too, with the Sonal Lathan character, yes. where she's the editor of XL Magazine. She is writing a book. She's at the top of her game, Okay. And the Tay Diggs character is the one that ends up quitting his job and being sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, he has to accept money from her to start this new record label.
1: Yeah, he's in limbo.
0: He's in limbo. <laughs> and also, I mean, even like if you want to get down to brass tacks, I mean, his wife, Reese, is like a lawyer. I mean, she effectively has a better job than he does at certain points of this film. So I don't know. It's just sort of like, again, it's really refreshing to watch like rom-coms. Especially now, like, after so much time has passed where, you know, again, you've watched so many romantic films in the past that are just women in the Cinderella moment, just waiting around to be rescued, Mm -hmm. waiting for the guy to bring her her glass slipper. And these two movies, it's not happening. These are women who have their own agency and they're trying to figure out their own lives.
1: So now Lathan, in love, will get her own glass slipper.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's, I think, the best way to sum up sort of what the theme is about this week is just, I mean, it's just about Black romance, but also just about like sort of her characters in both these films being kind of the same type of woman. And it's like a modern woman. It's a woman who's like very talented and very smart and has her own thing going on. And she wants love. Yes. But it's also like she can't not be who she is.
1: Exactly. It's inspiring as hell.
0: (laughs) Right. She just wants to be loved for who she is. Yes. And I think it's inspiring and wonderful. And I love these movies for that.
1: I loved that you picked this movie. I thought they were so well-paired even though we did, <laughs> yeah. we both picked movies that we did not know starred the same people. Yeah. But they were so well-paired to tell that exact point, to tell that exact narrative. And I, I just, this movie always makes me laugh. Nothing makes me laugh more than watching Dre text on his BlackBerry. Man his elbows out Like, I don't know. You just have to watch the film and watch that part. (laughs) He has the most awkward texting posture I've ever seen.
0: I was like, there was a mention of a two-way pager at one point in the film. And I'm like, this must have been before people knew how to text, because who in the hell is texting like that?
1: It's back when you had to press every letter four times to get to the, like, you had to press (laughs) the nine ten times to get to the T. And then you had to (laughs) press. So he was like working out to send these messages.
0: Look, and and I got it. I would be remiss if I did not mention that outfit where he wears that periwinkle tank top. Thank you. With the baggy leather pants. <laughs> like the man's got a body. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just tell you something? Tay Diggs started following me on Twitter like two years ago. Yeah, he followed everyone. Yes, he definitely followed everyone. I have not followed him back for some reason. (laughs) And I don't know why. I just looked. Like, when we were about to record this episode, I was like, remember when you saw that Tate Dick started to follow you on Twitter? And he got really excited. And then he realized he's following, like, 60,000 million people. (laughs) But then I realized that I didn't follow him back. Oh, my God. And I'm like, why did I not do that?
1: I don't think anyone thought it was really him. They're like, I'm not following this Tay Diggs fan account. And as it
0: turns out. We're going to do this live right now. I'm going on Twitter as we speak. Oh my word. And I'm going to follow Tay Diggs back. Finally. Thank you. Just to end this episode. I just to like, give the man some validation. He literally will never notice. But here we go. <laughs> I, I'm sm- I just smashed that follow button, Tay Diggs. There it is. Now you have one followers. And one of them is me. I can't. Oh,
1: God, I can't. I love it. His, his social media person will be thrilled. Whoever followed those 800,000 people for him is going to be like, finally one followed us back. It was worth the
0: wait. It was. And I, I'm, I'm so glad we did this theme. I just love this month that we're doing. I mean, there's going to be more episodes in the next couple weeks, but we've, we've already given you two that are great. I hope you watch the movies. Yes.
1: And what about next week? Do you want to tell them what's coming up? What films they should be watching?
0: Okay. I sure will. So next week, the movies are... (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) I just remembered what we called it. I just remember what we called the episode.
1: Millie just realized what the theme was, but we can't tell you. You just have to watch the movies. (laughs) Okay.
0: The movies for next week are Inside Man from 2006 and Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995. Oh my God, I cannot
1: wait. I cannot wait. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about Inside Man on this podcast since we started.
0: Oh my God. It is finally happening. I couldn't be more pleased. Look, if you guys want to email us, if you want to talk about Sanaa Lathan, and if you want to talk about Omar Epps, if you want to talk about Tay Diggs on Twitter, please email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. And if you have um, any
1: photos of Boris Kojo hanging around your house, or your weddings, or <laughs> just, you know, find us on our social. If you have any pictures of, of Tay Diggs reprising that outfit with the baggy <laughs> leather pants and the periwinkle tank top, just go ahead and find us on Twitter and Instagram at I Saw Pod.
0: We've also got periwinkle tank tops in our merch. No, we don't. <laughs> um, I'm lying. I'm lying. But we should offer them, to be honest. We should offer a combo of the periwinkle tank top and the leather baggy pants.
1: We should offer two of those outfits only, and the first two people to buy them are the new hosts of the show.
0: It's our supreme launch. It's our limited edition merch. (laughs) 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 The thought of that is making me laugh so hard. Well, we do have our merch, though, in the Exactly Right (laughs) Shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more of
1: this, just us hopped up on caffeine and chatting about recumbent bikes and toe socks, we have so many bonus episodes that are available exclusively on Stitcher Premium, (laughs) uh, and you can use the promo code SAW for a free month.
0: Oh my God. Danielle, as always, a true pleasure to be with you.
1: Truly, thank you for getting me through this day with some some hexes, anything, and then recording this incredible episode with me. You're the best, and I love you, and I'm so glad that we are friends and that we have this moment.
0: Totally agree. See you guys soon. Bye. Bye.
1: This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. You can email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.